Welcome to Lost in Translations, this is Michael and today I'm joined by Lauren again and we are talking about our favourite translations of 2018. Thank you, Lauren, for agreeing to do a best of recording yeah. as well. So I read a lot of good translations this year. So far, I mean, we're talking in November, so I have another month to be able to finish a few more. But <laughs> just like you, you're probably like you'll probably get several more in before the end of the year, right? Yeah. Well, the other day I did this course where we learned how to make zines. Okay. And uh, so we learned how to fold a piece of a4 paper to make a little zine and one of the exercises I did was just put my favorite reads of 2018 and I just did 15 books I really love but last night I finished a book that would probably be up there as my favorite book so it's already out of date <laughs> well you can add some to your zine <laughs> my handwriting is terrible so I would never publish a zine like this <laughs> But it was just a fun way to talk about books. Exactly. It's fun that you're just using that creative expression in some other way. <laughs> I'm always looking for different ways to talk about literature. Yeah. That's why I have a blog. I sometimes booktube. I do bookstagram sometimes. Not enough. <laughs> I have a podcast. <laughs> Ta-da! Yeah. So that, the book that you said that you finished last night, which one was that? That was Sphinx by Anna Garata, and that was translated by Emma Remington. And this author is a experimental French author. Okay. She's part of she's part of the same literary group as George's Prep, who wrote a book without using the letter E. Oh. It was called Avoid. And interesting enough, when people translated the book, they put the same restrictions on themselves. Like in English, it's called Avoid. They translated the book without the letter E. In Spanish, they can't really do that because E is used so much in Spanish. So I think they did it without using the letter A. I, I don't even know how you would attempt that. That seems so difficult. Yeah, so they put these restrictions on their writing to try and push themselves creatively in different ways. And with this book, it's a genderless romance Okay. So the narrator and the love interest, you never know their gender. Sounds pretty fascinating, though. And, I yeah, what I, it's a book I'm probably going to do on the podcast in the very near future. But Well, then I'll have to wait to hear you talk more yeah, about it. Yeah, so I don't want to talk too much about it because it is one that I definitely wanted to discuss. But when you think about French, there's a lot of feminine and masculine verbs and, like, different ways of saying things can give away the gender of the narrator or the love interest. So it must have been really difficult to write. That's pretty fascinating, though, just what they tried to do experimentally. Yeah, and it's the writing style is definitely my type of writing. It's very lyrical. It's beautiful, but it's gritty. Mm. If 
you get what I mean? Like with French literature, they have this really great way of being descriptive and minimalist in the same kind of way. So you get a sense of what's going on, but you're not getting bogged down with all the details. So are are they, is this writer from mainland France or from like a... Okay, interesting. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure where, but she's definitely from mainland France, I believe. Uh, there were a few books that I that were on my list this year, but they're more like French diaspora, um, you know, like post-colonial French places. Okay, uh, what do you have on your list? The one that I read that I really liked that. Uh, it's a little bit experimental too. It was called The Restless. And it's by Gertie Danbury and translated by Judith Miller. And um, Gertie Danbury is from Guadeloupe, which is an island in the in the Caribbean. Yep. And it's a French speaking it's a French speaking island and, and country. And it is still considered a French overseas department. So they're they're not they're not they're, independent. They're not completely independent, but I think they still have some autonomy, and you know they have like a like a person in parliament and things like that in France. But this book was called The Restless, and it's kind of a like I said, it's experimental in the way it's structured because it's structured like a, like a dance called the quadrille, yeah. which is similar. I don't know if. if Australians have this, but definitely in, in America, we have like, you know what square dancing is? Yes. So it's kind of like this, this, you know, it's this structured dance that someone calls, like there's a person who calls the dance and then the people do it and then they'll call a different move and then the people do it. So she, this, this author kind of structured the story on this basic dance idea. It's a, it sounds a little awkward at first, but it's uh, about the historical uh, things that happened in her country of Guadeloupe back in the 1960s they were when there was a lot of unrest and when they were trying to basically decolonize themselves from France. Okay, that sounds really fascinating. It it, it really was. It, it's kind of, it's told from this from the point of view of these young children who are witnessing this unrest in their you know in their small island. There's a lot of French phrases and, and like kind of Creole phrases in it that mix, you know, that mix several different languages, like, like just kind of street languages. And uh, it's, it's a really cool book that was short. Gertie Danbury is a, is a playwright as well. And you could definitely tell that this book had a lot of influence, like a play. You could almost see it being set on a stage. So that was one I liked quite a bit. Um, I read that as part of Women in Translation month back in August. Another one that I read earlier this year that was also translated from French was called And the Birds Rain Down by Jocelyn Saussier, and it was translated by Rhonda Mullins. This is a Canadian book, a um, French-Canadian book from uh, Quebec. Oh, yeah. And I talked about this one a little bit more on, um, on Reading Envy back, like, in May, but just a few sentences about it. It's, just, it's a novel takes place in northern Ontario, but uh, it's, it's, it's kind of this historical look at these, these older men who live out in the forest who have chosen to be kind of hermits, but then how they're pulled back into society with these various things that happen. I don't want to give too much away, but that was a book that I really, I really enjoyed this year. And it was a, it was a French book too. So. Yeah. I noticed that in my top five, I have two other French books. 
One was The Disoriental by Naga Javadi, and that was translated by Tina Kova. Mm-hmm. And she's an Iranian living in France. And it's about the narrator who I think is her. I think it's an autofiction. She's um, at a, a pregnancy clinic to try and get pregnant. And the whole book centers around all the different generations of her past and the history of Iran. They all come flooding back into her memories and she remembers back to her great-great-grandfather who had 50 wives and just how things have changed culturally for them and how how things have changed for Iran and for her moving to France. It was really good. She is a queer character and she identifies as a queer person. So the it goes a lot into the LGBT aspects of how the Iranian people kind of treat queer people. Mm-hmm. This, I, this was, is nominated on the long list, right, for a National Book Award. Yeah, that's the one I wanted to win. Ah, I haven't read this one yet. You're intriguing. Yeah, it's out by Europa Editions, who often do great books, and they often translate a lot of, well, they often release a lot of women in translation. It sounds fascinating. Yeah. And the other French one I had was The Seventh Function of Language by Laura mm-hmm. Bonet, and that was translated by Sam Taylor. It's a pretty well-known book, but I love it because it kind of blends literary criticism with a thriller-type story. It's one that's been on my list for a long time. But yeah. then when I saw you read it, I was really excited because I, I had never heard anybody else talk about it. Yeah, everyone talked about his other book, which was H-H-H-H. Okay. Which was the one about the German, um, the Nazi German officer, I forget his name, but it, it's like a fictionalized account of the history of this character. Okay. I'm not familiar with that one either. Oh, it, it got lots of attention over here. I, I think it was nominated for a lot of awards as well. But I think what he does is he takes like an aspect of history and he writes a story around it and with the seventh function of language, he's talking about people like Roland Barthes and Michel Foucault and all these literary critics from France and all their ideas on literature. And he's like blending it into this murder mystery. And they have a detective investigating this case and he has to get an intellectual to kind of explain all these theories to him because he doesn't understand them. So it gives the author a way to talk about literary criticism and teach the reader about literary criticism. That sounds pretty great. Yeah, I, I love when you can teach in a fun and exciting way. And because it's a thriller, it reads really quickly. I, I guess when I added it to my list, I didn't realize it was a thriller. I thought it was more like literary criticism. So that, that sounds even more yeah. interesting. Well, literary thrillers kind of work both ways. <laughs> I have a question. Was it one that you had to know a little bit more about Foucault and about Roland Barthes and things like that to be able to understand, or were you good not to no, know about I, I, th- I think the way they structured it with the detective that didn't know anything about it, it kind of gave the author an end on how to talk about these people and their effect on the history of literature and criticism. Okay. Because I've, I mean, I'm familiar with Foucault and like postmodernism, and I've read a little bit of Roland Barthes and his mythologies, but I wouldn't say I know that much about either of them enough to really get it. But it's kind of cool if they use this uh, 
this thriller aspect and like this person, you know, describing it as they go along. So then you've got someone to kind of explain walking through it. Yeah. Like when it's done well, it, it's really good. When it's not, it can get really irritating. But I think with, with a topic like literary criticism, there's a lot there to talk about. And if you're an, probably if you're an expert on the topic, it might get annoying because you know all the information. But it's good for a casual reader that's not quite that familiar with it. Yeah, I'm going to pick that one up. That sounds great. What else did you have on your list? Um, I had a few others. So there was there was a book of poetry that I read and adored this year. And this is a, um, this is, was, was Map by Wisława Simborska. And it was translated from the Polish by Claire Kavanaugh. Simborska won the Nobel Prize for poetry, uh, I'd want to say back in the early 2000s, but I, it could have even predated that a little bit. And I wasn't really that familiar with her work. I'd heard her name before, but I picked this one up. Um, like I said, it's just called Map. And I think it says it's like full collection or something like that. This book is huge, but most of her poems are very accessible, very short, very witty. And, and I love when that can come across in translation. I hadn't read that many, many like Polish literature and much translated from Polish. And I really, I really liked her style a lot. So I could obviously see why. She's got a few books of essays more books of poetry and i can't wait to dig into more because i really liked really liked this one well strap yourself in i think polish literature will be the next big thing like with korean literature at the moment because olga tukacha won the man booker international for flights you're right i i suspect a lot more polish literature to be coming out i know there's a few dukacha books coming out or already out now yeah well i I know that maybe you don't read as much poetry, but I think you, especially if you if you are into Polish literature and want to read a little bit more about it, this uh, Simborska is a great, obviously a great place to start. Um, I do need to read more poetry. I feel like I don't read enough. And this this one was really accessible, and like they, you know, they're not they're not too um, ethereal. <laughs> they don't. They feel okay. very. This, in this book felt very grounded. You know, talking about things that people would understand, but she just has a, a beautiful way with words. I'm reading another Polish uh, Polish translation right now that it's actually a Polish nonfiction. It's called Dancing Bears. And it's interesting that oh, you yeah. said that about Polish literature because it, it's more like journalism from this book is fascinating and it, it probably would be on my favorite list, except I'm not done with it yet. But <laughs> but it's about, about these dancing bears that were kept by what, what they over and over describe as gypsies, you know, and Roma people. But they, they keep on calling them gypsies throughout the book. So I'm not exactly sure on the phrasing there. But these bears were, these bears that were trained to dance in various like circus performing kind of things. And then... When Bulgaria joined the EU, that practice was outlawed. They were not able to keep bears anymore, but yet they had, you know, hundreds or dozens of these animals who had been trained and who couldn't be released back into the wild or else they'd be killed or, you know, they'd have a major problem with just these bears not not knowing how to care for themselves. So 
the the author makes this larger argument that this is kind of related to you know post communism and what these people did after their whole structure and their whole infrastructure is gone after they're not you know they their their government is gone they've always gotten used to this certain thing so it's a really interesting story in that way but it when you mentioned about polish literature that made me think of my current read yeah that sounds really fascinating and i definitely want to read that the problem is the word gypsy yeah so that's he, pretty that's not a not probably not a good word to use it definitely would age the book really quickly Curious to me why they chose to use that, but they say it multiple times in the translation, even though the book just came out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm surprised so, the publisher didn't change that. Or it's, it's an interesting like, side note, and I'm not exactly sure because he's describing uh, these people in Bulgaria, even though he is a Polish journalist. So I don't know if yeah. that has anything to do with Bulgarian versus Polish language and how that word comes across. And then yeah, it's brought I'm not sure. But anyway, that's an aside. But that was uh, that's something else I'm reading right now that's really intriguing and probably belongs on this favorite translations of the year <laughs> as well. Not much nonfiction or translated nonfiction that gets mentioned, apart from Svlada Aleksevich, who seems to get mentioned all the time. Yeah, well, when you win a Nobel Prize, that means you're mentioned all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, I love her writing style. I think she's definitely worth checking out. And her book, The Unwomanly Face of War, would have made my list of best fiction if I went back far enough, like top 15, top 20. Hmm. That's one I haven't read yet, but it's definitely on my radar. If you like that journalistic style, I like her the way she just gets stories from people. And that's a particular sweet spot for me. I really, I love nonfiction. So when I'm able to to find a nonfiction translation, I feel like I won the lottery. <laughs> I, I really enjoy fiction novels as well, but I, I, I do seek out finding, you know, essays or nonfiction or even poetry that are translated because I like seeing things that are a little bit off the beaten track like that. Well, your passion is learning, I guess. That kind of fits in well with that. And another one that, you know, both of we've already talked about a little bit more, but I think both of us really like Convenience Store Woman, and that's by Sayaka Murata and translated by Jenny Tapley Takamori. Definitely up there for me. Uh, yeah. I think I love the way they like kind of look at society and the way that she seemed comfortable in her job as a convenience store woman. Yeah. But everyone else expected her to move on. So they pressured exactly. her. Talking about her like she was failing, but yet this seemed like something that was bringing her so much joy. Yeah. And the author used to work in a convenience store. So I wonder how autobiographical it is as well. Well, there was a lot of talk too, you know, about this woman and if she had some sort of disorder or if she had some sort of, you know, like diagnosis of autism or Asperger's or something like that. And it's never, never specifically said in the story, but you know, she doesn't have, she doesn't seem to put value in the same things in society that everybody else does. So she's kind of this outlier and people just, people, you know, push her aside. I'm not sure what to think of that. I mean, we definitely want representation on these people on the spectrum and stuff like that. But it feels like they're just diagnosing her because she's different to everyone else. And that kind of defeats the purpose of the story. Exactly. Yeah, I think people are just too quick to try to diagnose what's going on with her, but they're missing like what's happening. 
I think if it doesn't say, why are you going to assume that they are on the spectrum? Yeah, this book was great, and it it's yeah, it was short, but. Man, it packs so much of a punch for just such a short book. Definitely. It's one I still think about. Me and too. I read it probably earlier this year. One that I've actually thought of rereading, and I don't reread that much, but I, I really like this one. And it there was there was so much there about, you know, like different different ways people think, different ways people function through society. And then there's this larger kind of story that comes in too about this relationship that she has with this other person. And, you know, what he brings to it, too. And, oh, my goodness, there's just so much baggage there. There's so much to unpack. <laughs> yeah, well, if you ever do reread it, let me know. Yeah, we I'll, I'll, <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll definitely be keen to reread it and maybe we can record something on it because it's yeah, one it that good. I definitely want to talk about. It was a great story. It really was. It was one of my standouts for the year. Yeah. But, you know, I had I had five translations written down. And I think I've already talked about five, but I haven't mentioned all the ones that I was going to mention. <laughs> so another, well, another one, one I, I would mention was Faces in the Crowd by Valerie Lasselli. Yeah. And translated by Christina McSweeney. I've yeah. read four of her books now and I really love her. Faces you- in the Crowd, I did an episode on earlier this year, but I think it was definitely my favorite. I am currently reading her essay collection called Sidewalks. Yes. And I, I'm actually thinking that this one might be my favorite that I read of her. I read Faces in the Crowd and I read Story of My Teeth and this Sidewalks might be my favorite. <laughs> okay. Well, that does definitely sounds like your type of book because it's essays. Exactly. Essays and, you know, there are some pieces in it where they're a little bit more like what we were talking about earlier, like kind of auto fiction where you don't exactly know if this is happening to her or someone else, but I really, I like her style in it. And I don't know, I, I'm finding this to be a little bit more for me. Faces in the crowd seemed a little out there sometimes or too experimental with some things. I love experimental literature. So that worked for I, me. The story of my team had me for a while and then it just went a little off the rails for me. But I, I mean, I like experimental stuff and I like weird things. Once I've read this, is definitely the, my favorite thus far. Sidewalks. Story of my teeth was quirky, and I definitely enjoyed it. But I do think it's probably the weaker of all her works that I've read so far. Which other ones did you read? You read those two, and then oh, you read the, the new um, one, the essay. What's it called? Tell me, tell me something. The forty questions or something like that. The one about immigration and yeah, migrant. it's a long form essay about immigration and her experience with immigration yeah like working in immigration court right yeah tell me how it ends an essay in 40 questions and the 40 questions that she's talking about are the questions they ask the kids to try and get a sense of what they need to do to try and keep these kids in the country so it's like um have you been hurt do you have anyone to stay with all these questions that they have to ask because of the immigration policies in america but a lot of them are very difficult to hear the answers to. Exactly. I think that's partly why I haven't read it yet because it's such a, uh, you have to like almost mentally and emotionally prepare to read something like that when it's right in front of your yeah. eyes. Yeah, I don't live in America and it definitely hit me hard. We have our immigration policies that are terrible here as well. Yeah. But I kind of feel helpless, like how can we change it? Yeah. 
Well, I think that's partly how she was, right? That's yeah. why she had to do this translation work for these for these children. Yeah, and she's actually doing something to try and help them, and she's still feeling helpless about trying to save these kids. Yeah. Well, her other essay book is a lot lighter than that, I will say. <laughs> yeah, I have two copies of that on my shelf, so I should <laughs> read one of them. <laughs> Well, if you've got two, yeah, you should you should crack open one of them. <laughs> yeah, so, like for for Christmas, I normally give my family my wish list of books I want. Mm-hmm. And last year, I got heaps of the books on the list, which was awesome. And surprisingly, I got two of the same book. <laughs> Great, That's which fun. is surprising when you've got a list of over four hundred books. <laughs> I need to start doing that, just being like, here. But my family doesn't tend to buy me books. They're just like, oh, well, you all, you already have so many. Why do you need more? And I'm like, that's what I want. <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing I want. Why do you want me to pick something else? All that's on my wish list is like books and socks. <laughs> and, my, okay. and, and yet my family still wants to get me other stuff. And I'm like, didn't you see my wish list? <laughs> It's hard to think of other things when all you really need is book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like if I need anything else, I'll buy it. These are the things I want. Exactly. So they should get you and get books. They should just understand that that's what you want. <laughs> yeah. Was there any other books on your list? Yeah. So there was one more that I really liked. And, you know, this opens up um, many more that I want to read by this author. Um, It's Adrift on the Nile. And it's by Naguib Mahfouz, who is an Egyptian author. He's passed away now. But he wrote this book in the 1960s and wrote many other books as well. And like I said, he's Egyptian. So he writes in Arabic and he won the Nobel Prize as well. So I found several of these authors you know, who, who have been translated and they're Nobel Prize winners. Unsurprisingly, I found their their books great and fabulous. And I, I really liked this one. It's almost more of a novella, or maybe I don't know what the distinction is between a novella and like a novel where that stops, but it's, yeah. it's maybe around 200 pages. So it's a pretty quick read. And it's just about these, this, these friends, these Egyptian friends, and they get together and, you know, have like a little dinner party, uh, cocktail party kind of thing in, in 1960s Egypt. And then how you, I think part of it comes from realizing what we think of when we think of Egypt now, and then realizing in the 1960s, it was very different than what it is now. So just in terms of, you know, people's everyday life, and almost like Western ideals and things like that, that we would consider Western ideals. And that, that was a, a major thing in the 1960s there. There was a lot of what we would consider progress and, you know, all yeah. sorts of that. And now I don't want to say no, there's no progress because of course there is, there's many things happening that we never even know about there, but uh, that's not the story that you're hearing most of the time yeah. from me about, you know, what's going on in Egypt. It always feels like it's, especially when they're reporting on stuff like this, it feels like they're upset because they're not conforming to Western values. Exactly. This story is, it was, it's like these, you know, literati kind of people. They're all well-educated kind of professors or journalists. And, you know, they're just having these really interesting conversations, sitting around, smoking their hookah and drinking wine. <laughs> It's uh I, I really liked it. And I don't know if his other books are all like this. I think he has 
think he has like a trilogy of books that are kind of like a family saga kind of stories. Um, that might have been what really pushed him over to win, win the Nobel. I think that's one of his one of his famous trilogies. But he's written a lot, in, including several nonfictions and essays and you know journalism kind of stories. But I really liked this one, and that I, I forgot to mention. So this is by Nagib Mahfouz, but then Francis Liardé is the one who is the translated translator for this one. Good because I'd call you out if you didn't mention the translator. There you go. Big ups to Francis. Good job on this one, Francis. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times on BookTube, I spend most of my time commenting who translated. <laughs> so so I just get people to always name the translator because they don't get the re- recognition they deserve. Exactly. Well, and you mentioned, you know, about Valeria Luiselli. She often uses um, McSweeney. Yeah. Uh, and I think all of her books are, are translated by her. So it's clear that they have a relationship, even though Valeria speaks English. Yeah. Well, her Tell Me How It Ends trans- was written in English. Okay. So I think that I much prefer that she gets a translator, but she definitely can write well in English as well. But that's, that's an interesting choice, you know, making that decision of okay, I'm going to write this in Spanish, but then I'm going to you know, work with someone to translate my words into a language that I also know, but I don't want to write into <laughs> for this particular book. So it's really interesting that that decision and like that thought process that she went into for that. I guess it depends on how comfortable they are in writing in a different language. Exactly. Yeah, it's just what you're comfortable with too. And sometimes yeah. like certain literary styles or flourishes or something like that that you wouldn't be able to get across in yeah. you know, your, your second I guess third language. you're stuck having to know English because that's what most of the world kind of seems to speak. Supposedly. Supposedly, sure yeah. No, <laughs> you've definitely got all the Indian languages and you've got Mandarin and Cantonese and exactly. Arabic that are huge languages but like online it seems very english focused although but that's the online that we see because we're we speak yeah english. that's that yeah that's it that's what we see well and the same goes for like russians there's so many russians on the internet you know i'm not even going to say all the subtext there but there's so many russians <laughs> but yeah we don't really see that many russian posts but that's yeah because, yeah you know, and i'm thinking about the communities i'm involved in it's definitely English focus. Yeah. Although you look at YouTube and now the biggest channel on YouTube is Indian. Everyone wants to be a part of the online community in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems that way. There are probably lots of people that don't want to be a part of it. I go both ways. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're only on Goodreads and Instagram. That's enough. That's enough for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's whatever works, I guess. <laughs> I'm practically everywhere because I just need new places to talk literature. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, like I opened a Discord channel just because I wanted another place to talk literature, but that doesn't get much attention. I'm not even familiar with that medium. I don't know that much about Discord. Discord is a, well, it started off like a gaming community, but basically it's just like an online forum. So it feels very much like the old school forums. But you can create, like, your own communities. Yeah, so it was set up so gamers could create their little communities of people that want to talk about a game or play together or something like that. So 
it started off as a gaming thing, but it's started to branch out more as in people are using it to talk all different things. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I, I like it, but it's still fairly new and not many people on board with the whole concept, but it definitely reminds me of the old days of being on a forum talking about books or talking about whatever. I used to talk a lot about music. No, I know. I love the forums. I, I think that's where, well, you and I are the same age, so we uh, we were doing that at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, that was what people did, like the forums and the little chat room sides and stuff like that. We're only the same age by a few days now. <laughs> you are a few weeks older than me, I will say. Yeah, I I feel a lot older. <laughs> but, yeah, we're both the same age now, so you can't do that old man shtick too much more. <laughs> I will do that old man stuff forever. <laughs> Were you born an old man? <laughs> yeah, just you wait till I am a grumpy old man. That doesn't make sense because I already am. I was going to say, you currently are. <laughs> yeah. The last book I want to talk about is The Seventh Madman, which is a Argentinian classic by Roberto Alt and translated by Nick Colstor with an afterword by Roberto Bellario. So there's a name people will recognize. And add that Roberto to it. Yeah, the Roberto Bellario afterward is kind of works well in the favour because it, they share a very similar sort of style. It's really gritty type writing. It reminds me of, you know, 1940s pulp novels like Raymond Chandler. Mm-hmm. But yeah. they're, they're talking about like all the political movements and the power changes that are happening in Argentina. So I love that because I'm learning about Argentinian history, but I'm reading a style of literature that I really love. And what was this one called again? The Seven Mad Men. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's really hard to explain, and I read it so long ago. Basically, a middle-class man that leaves his job and kind of goes down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. He starts following this mysterious person, and he just leads him towards political fanaticism and it kind of looks at like the politics of Argentina and the history of Argentina with all these different political movements rising the far right and the far left keep trying to gain power and how people kind of fall down this rabbit hole of being pushed into this extreme kind of politics. Is this, was this written in the 70s or the 80s? It was written in 1929. Oh, wow. Okay. Way, way back. Yes. That's, that's cool. So that kind of gritty writing's been around for a while. Maybe it's this, this uh, well, Bolaño's Chilean. He's from Chile. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he so, is. It's like Chile and Argentina and I guess a few of the other South American countries just have that, that gritty feel to their stories. Yeah. I often find that their styles feel very Russian in a sense because you kind of compare it to the Soviet era. Mm, yeah, I can see but, that. But with these countries, you've, you're you swinging from the far left to the far right like frequently, so there's a lot more political struggle going on in these countries. But, yeah, I do compare it to the Soviet era because of that really extreme politics style and the literature that came out 
because of it. I'm going to write this one down. This sounds this sounds really good. It does have a sequel. I'm not sure if it's been translated into English yet, but I do know it's coming soon. Uh, the publisher is Serpent Tales. In a, I'm not sure if you know Serpent Tales. They're not an American publisher, but I'm sure they've got an American publisher yeah, for this book as well. I'm not sure who. Probably someone like New Directions or something. Okay, I'll look into it. Yeah, I'm doing a, a South America project that I'm going to be starting next year, and I'm planning to kind of go roughly country by country and focus on literature, but also focus on some historical texts and learning a little bit more about you know various South American countries. So I'm definitely going to write this one down as one to include for Argentina. That sounds fascinating. I look forward to hearing all about it and maybe reading some books with you. Yeah, that'd be great. I, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to start. I have a list of several dozen books already that I've lined up and I'm trying to figure out geographically if I want to start, you know, far south or the north and make my way down or just kind of randomly pick. So we'll see. I'll keep you uh, in the loop. <laughs> Are you going to do a literary map for it? Probably, because I love maps. So I might do something like that. Yeah, yeah. might keep my little road trip or something like that. Yeah. Be interested to, to explore all those countries there that I haven't read from. I'm having a hard time finding anything from Paraguay. I have not found really okay. anything from Paraguay at all. So if you or any so of your listeners have anything Yeah, if you've Paraguay, got any suggestions and dot notes on instagram yeah thank you i'll be uh, soliciting any any literature that anybody knows of and it doesn't have to be just novels or fiction i'm, I'm looking into like histories poetry essays anything like that and have you, you know, looked into the translation database sounds like i need to it's managed by chad from open book okay and i think it's hosted on publisher weekly it's a database of different books that have been translated for the last few years and where they're from. Sounds good. Yeah, it's well, really I, useful if you're looking for a country. Well, I, I have found things for almost every other country. So just to be like completist about it, I wanted to find something for Paraguay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have tons for Brazil and Argentina and Chile and a few for Peru and a few. I'd like Ecuador is one that I don't have very much for. Venezuela and Colombia have quite a few. So, you know, it's like you got players and then you've got ones that are a little smaller that don't get much notice, like Bolivia, Uruguay, and Paraguay don't have that many. Yeah, well, you've got some of those big hitters for like Colombia. You've got Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Exactly. And for Chile, you've got Bellagio. When I read... Argentina has heaps. Yeah. I read 2666 this year, uh, Bellagio's book. And I'm curious to read some of his others because I had kind of a mixed reaction to that book. I was intrigued to read more, but at the same time, you know, a lot of people talk about this being his unfinished work because he, he died when this he was writing this yeah. book. Whether it was actually complete or not, you know, that's like the big question. It is probably going to be one of my projects for next year. I need to read more big books, and that's definitely one that I want to get to. We'll have a lot to discuss. <laughs> I don't think we need any more material. <laughs> well, you know we'll make it. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. 
Uh, All right. Thank you for agreeing to tell us your favorite translations as well. Well, thanks a lot, Michael. This was great. I'll leave a link to your Instagram and your Goodreads so people could follow you. Who knows? I may start some sort of little blog or a website. So uh, for this Latin American project, I may. Oh, I will definitely pressure you into that. (laughs) Great. Now that I've said it. (laughs) Yeah, well. I'm all for more blogs, especially more blogs talking about translations. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I need to start <laughs> need to start the work. <laughs> you told the wrong person about this idea. I know, I, know I did. <laughs> all right. Thank Thanks you for, again. Yes, and I'm sure we will discuss another book in the future. I hope so. <laughs> all right. Bye. If you want to support Lost in Translations, please go to patreon.com forward slash translations pod and all money there will help support the show. And please remember to subscribe and while subscribing, please rate the show. This will help others find the podcast. All our links to social media are in the show notes and you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and let's see under translations pod. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Walgarukabar and Bindal people. We acknowledge their ownership of this land and all the traditional owners in Australia and acknowledge their care of the land. This is a Macaulay Flower production. <laughs>